Who's that behind you? That was Habby. Hi, Habby. Chris said hi. All right, this is too much. He waved. We got to get back on track. Hi, welcome to our radio. It's a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey, congratulations on getting through that intro in oh, one okay. take. Uh, no, this no, 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 no. I want them to know that was awesome. Wow. Yeah, actually, I was rooting. I was rooting for you. Okay. Well, I did it, everyone. So, and on that note, everybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how are you? from here. <laughs> Can I ask you guys a question? How have you been eating lately? How's that been going? I'm so glad you asked that because I I wanted to share this and I wasn't sure when on the show I would. So coinciding with, you know, the staying at home due to COVID, I started eating very differently to lose weight. It's going really well. And I I think the fact that I'm home all the time and preparing my own meals and feel like I have more control over my diet is probably what's allowing for that. But I'm eating, I think, very healthy compared to normal. What about you, Trisha? How have your habits changed? I think the thing is, I'm actually having regular meals now. I mean, my meal, my meal eating things was really chaotic. Like I'd have like tea for breakfast. If I remembered, I might have lunch. I might go out to dinner. Mm. It was not very structured, but actually my, my eating is actually really structured now. Like I actually have three meals a day now. It's still, my breakfast might still be light, but I actually sit down, have tea at the table. Then I go work and then I leave and then go have lunch like it's very <laughs> but wow. i suppose well i suppose it's because i'm breaking up the routine i'm moving to different rooms so it helps <laughs> meanwhile i'm like mint oreos <laughs> ice cream farm <laughs> cookie that's just, that's just breakfast then for lunch <laughs> out of control help please can you send help please you, well, I mean, your day is probably unstructured, no? Monday through Wednesday is well-structured. Okay. Thursday through Sunday, I'm just sort of like flossy dying. Like, it's just, I wake up at noon. I, I've been having breakfast and then breakfast dessert. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then lunch. And then like a scoop of ice cream. Like, I have dessert after every meal. I was re-listening to the episode where we talked to Lindsay about cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that episode. First of all, if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen to it. And it just got me thinking. Like, I was like, I bet other people than me are like cooking and like preparing their meals and whatever. And I'm glad that you two are having such a great time. I'm struggling out there, <laughs> struggling. Well, the only the only way I've been able to empower myself or discipline myself to eat healthier is I'm using the Weight Watchers app now. And that kind of accountability really works for me. Like mm-hmm. having to budget my my food, just it really works for me. That that's what's made the difference. You need something to think about in these times. <laughs> <laughs> I need something to keep me from eating the way you're eating, because I that's how I would eat if I if I wasn't Listen. disciplining myself. The one thing that I have resisted so far, um, as I know some people on this call have not, is just drinking at strange, weird times during the day, eleven a.m. Mm-hmm. a.m. Trisha, would you, do you know anything about that or? 
like you didn't know he was talking about you. I was waiting for you to react. <laughs> I know, I know. This is trope on this show. It's a certified trope at this point. Uh, let, me, let me blow Trisha up. Trisha has an 11 a.m. gym. <laughs> and a 2 p.m. gym. <laughs> and a 2.30 gym. You know what? You are ro- you're so wrong about that. I mean, my drinking um is really set for the weekends. Mm-hmm. I will say though. What do weekends mean anymore? What? I, you know, my days are actually it's weird. I guess this is the theme. They're really structured. I get up in the morning and I change into something that looks like I can have a meeting from the top. Who know who needs to know what's going on in the bottom? <laughs> And then, uh, and then, and, and I and I do this every day. I I do this because I I think for the last couple of times I've actually had Zoom calls every day, so that happens. And then on the way I know it's the weekend is that I then have day pajamas that I then establish on Saturday, and I wear the day pajamas from Saturday through Sunday evening. <laughs> Which is a real demarcation of the weekend. <laughs> I have to say, I haven't done laundry in like three weeks, right? Oy. Why? Because not for nothing, I'm wearing pajamas and shorts so often that I'm not wearing a lot of underwear. So underwear is what propels me to get to the laundromat. Do I have exactly the right number of pairs so I do laundry like every week to week and a half? Without that constraint... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, there's so much wrong with that. Yeah, I, just... I know, I know. I'm home, Jason. So there's hygiene, there's the ability to get infections. Like you need to do laundry. I'm not saying I'm wearing the same clothes. The thing is, like underwear is the kind of clothing that I have the least amount of on purpose. Right. There was a time when I had like 25 pairs of underwear. So when I did do laundry, I I needed a forklift, right? So I'm just saying I have I have dozens of pairs of short shorts and pants. And I want to say one thing, Trisha. Was it Amazon or Target? Someone released data that said, like, since this virus started, they have sold far, they've sold an increase in, in tops, like shirts and stuff, with no increase in pants or shorts. <laughs> That's a great statistic. That's awesome. That should be a topic. Let's talk about that. Okay, so I made I made the I made the mistake of investing in loungewear at the Gap. Whew, now the Gap is letting me know these are clothes loungewear. <laughs> these are like no, these are work loungewear, weekend loungewear. I mean, you know, because now the Gap is like, how am I going to get people to buy things if I'm not if they're not leaving the house? So the thing the Gap has figured out is loungewear is smart. <laughs> So oh, that boy. actually is in practice because now everybody's like, I just need nice tops. Thank you very much. <laughs> the next time, I don't know when the next time I'm going to put on a pair of nice shoes will be. I was thinking that today I went for a walk and I'm like, I have been putting on these ratty sneakers every day <laughs> when I leave the house. And I, I have these other shoes and sneakers like I, I will never wear again. Uh, let's jump into some topics, huh? So... Former presidential hopeful Andrew Yang wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post um, calling to Asian Americans to, we can get into it because I'm not certain what he was calling them to do, but I, I think he was calling them to be more American and to show their patriotism to counteract the negative reactions and the racism that Asian Americans are facing today because of the coronavirus and the erroneous idea that somehow Asians are more susceptible, they brought it here, or it's a Chinese disease. 
and Andrew Yang in his op-ed had said that um, Asian Americans to pull themselves, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and wear red, white, and blue and go out and vote and eat apple pie and show them that they are as American as anyone else. This was met with a firestorm of criticism, and uh, I want to talk about it with you two. So we've all read Yang's piece. Where do you think Yang went wrong here? <laughs> Let's not pretend like what he said was not immensely problematic. Where do you think he went wrong? What do you think his intention was? I don't know what his in- intention was. It's a great question, and I really don't know. Because it's not like Asian Americans were like sitting on the sidelines before not doing anything, and then all of a sudden there's a call to action, and Asian American doctors have started reporting to work again. So, so that's a long way of me saying I don't know what his intention was. I thought it was a very strange piece. Let's drill down a little bit, and what does he mean by being more American? That's the tricky part of that piece for me. Because some of the people who supported what he wrote said that what he was really attempting to do was to cut across kind of identity politics and get at this core sense of Americanness. Or this idea that Americanness equal whiteness, which is what people were pushing back on. And so I think that what Yang did in that piece was ascribe values to how Asians lived. Lived or live? Live. But I want to say live. I say lived because it sounded he was like inviting them to be different. What was confusing to me was how was he defining American? Like, because that's what he that's what he invoked in them. Go be more American. So then the question for me is, well, how were they being un-American? Yeah. My problem with it was that it was very, basically he was calling on people to perform nationalism for an audience, right? Yes. Implied in there was like, let them see you. Let them see you wear red, white, and blue. Let them see you vote. Let them see you join the armed forces like so many Asian Americans did to escape internment, you know, during World War II. And it's like you said, like, well, what were they doing before? You know, were they just running around being like super Asian, whatever that means, like being super alien? I read the the piece and I thought it was really disappointing because he sounded to me like, and forgive me, but he just sounded to me like some of like the confused people of color I met in college when we were quite young, like people who'd grown up in white neighborhoods and just had sort of sucked in those values like he i just don't know how he got to be this old and still think of himself in those terms as if he's not doing enough or that asian americans aren't doing enough jason as you said yeah asian americans who are who are doctors have been reporting to work i'm sure every day and going home and voting and picking up their kids from hockey practice whatever the hell like I've been struggling with thinking, well, what was his intention? Like, obviously, I want to ascribe to him good intentions. He had an idea in his head. He wanted to call people to do something. And to. it just felt like victim blaming to me. People are being racist towards you, Asian Americans. But telling them not to be racist is not enough. You have to show them. That's where it lost me. Well, and the, the other thing that really bothers me about it, and this does still doesn't answer your question about what his intention was, it's just we know historically it doesn't work. Like we can think of lots of examples of minorities in this country and others who overtly and extraordinarily patriotic and don't get rewarded or 
accepted or further integrated or okay. whatever. Let's I mean, never forget the African Americans who fought on both sides of the Civil War and how that worked out for them. Well, and World War One. And World, and World War, II, War II. and Vietnam. I mean, we, again and again and again, African Americans are, you know, have have fought for this country in in really heroic ways, and then come you know come back and things are just the same. History would say that this doesn't work. What he is prescribing. I wonder though, because I think if you think about Yang's campaign, this isn't out of step with what he with his approach. Right. And it's also not out of step with many who supported him, because one of the things that was perceived as um, helpful about Andrew Yang was um, the Yang gang seemed to cross racial lines. Right. And so my thing is, I think that what he was doing was trying to hark to an identity that did not include race and ethnicity. However, how do you signal that? That was the, that's the confusing part for me because it seems to me, because I've read other, there are other scholars who are more, there, I'm calling him a scholar, but there are scholars who have advocated for that position as a kind of, I mean, I think if you think of most conservative scholars of color, they advocate for a kind of position that um, prescribes an American ideal that anyone can have access to. Yeah. Any 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 creed, color, race, all of that can have access to Americanness, and so I think that that's actually what he was calling to. But the thing that's strange about the Americanness is that it's always identified with the things that white people do. That's the part of it that I think is really difficult for me to unpack. Is like, what would it have looked like to talk about Americanness by not defaulting? to things that are kind of like sort of ridiculous tropes. Like, why do you have to wear a flag to be American? That's such a weird and sloppy way of kind of defining American identity. Also, he must be exhausted. That's a lot of work. And, to and convince also, people? <laughs> yeah, to convince people not to attack or assault or insult you. It just seems like a lot of work. And it's all on you, which is weird. I mean, he says explicitly in the article, you just can't tell people, don't be racist. That doesn't work. And I was like, okay, this doesn't work. So this is your answer to meeting resistance and challenging racists? Hearing you both, I actually do wonder now whether his intention was simply to get people focused on solutions and and not get distracted uh, by... By a poor rag piece in the Washington Post. (laughs) 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 That's a good point. He failed. But maybe his intention was to knock it... Because if you think about his campaign, I mean, he, he tried... He basically kind of dodged a lot of the you know, good versus evil kind of conversation and was saying like, I got solutions. Like we could talk about, you know, the president's racist and whatnot, but like, let's focus on solutions. Mm. Maybe that's what he was doing there. It's like, like, let's not get caught up in a back and forth. Let's just focus on, on solving the, the problems out there. I mean, or also let's not, let's also focus on how you can assert your control over the situation. Right. Because I think in some ways, it, I mean, that's what solution oriented thinking is. Right. It's like, what are the elements of this situation that you can control, which is you can control how you are signaling that you belong, which I think is his primary problem. It's like you cannot control how people perceive you by your external behavior. You really can't, because if someone believes you or perceives you to be foreign, there's no amount of American flag wearing no amount, no, no amount of perfect English, none of those things are going to get you to overcome that 
for even people who are blatantly racist and ones that are even quietly racist. Because how many times have Asians said people come up to them born and bred in the USA and they're like, but where are you really from? But it's weird to me to offer a solution when you haven't deconstructed the problem. One thing that's always challenging about talking about Asian Americans as a group is that there's such diversity within the group and there are differently situated groups of Asian Americans. So it, it's really hard to talk about why haven't Asian Americans as a group, for instance, started a movement or something because there are such different challenges. Obviously, there are some commonalities, but really different challenges across the Asian American across the Asian American community. All right, let's leave that there because I think I think we have reached the limits of what us non-Asian people can say and pontificate about the Asian American experience. Okay, so moving on, uh, Trisha wants to talk about something that her favorite sociologist brought up on Twitter, Trish. Yeah, so um, as everyone has moved to Zoom, including um, classroom students, uh, uh, Zoom bombing has become a real problem. Zoom bombing is when someone essentially breaks into your private, it's not private, it's actually public, that's why they're able to do it, breaks into your Zoom conversation and proceeds to not have fun with you, but actually scream racial epithet, um, misogynistic things, homophobic things, Mm -hmm. pornography. So it's not like they're coming in just to go, ah, and then leave. They're actually very aggressive about it. And so... um, as each of these um, incidences have happened and people begin to question the security of Zoom, the New York school district unilaterally, but actually it is a school district, so it could do what it wants. It says that um, teachers can no longer use Zoom for school. I didn't have an opinion about this. I really didn't because I thought to myself, oh, well, that's too bad. But then there was a, a lot of back and forth on my favorite sociologist timeline because her perspective was Zoom should have never been in the classroom in the first place. And that was a firestorm, at least a firestorm of responses from parents who felt that they had just gotten used to Zoom and Zoom has already told us how to patch this security issue. And so we should continue to go back to Zoom and blah, 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 all manner of things. But what it actually did for me was to raise this question. And I think this is where I think Tressie came down on, which is that we make these compromises around efficiency and what's easy often in non-pandemic situations. So relate that to Zoom, how does that- And so Zoom was easy. Zoom is easy. It was easy and it was um, digestible. Everyone was using it. You can find tips, blah, blah, blah. And so for the parents who were willing to say, this is something easy that I've got, that's all that mattered. But the people who were really against it were really thinking about student safety. It's fine for you and I as adults over 18 year olds to think about, to, mo- to sort of monitor and take care of our own safety. But the idea that students have a unique relationship with technologies and people have to think about their safety and think about what they're exposed to and what can happen to them online necessitates that you really be careful about what kind of technologies you use in a classroom setting. And that's what made me pause. And so I wanted to talk to you all about what your thinking is and do you think that the New York um, school district's position is extreme? What are the things that I'm missing here? What should, what should we be thinking about when we consider 
um, the the need for classrooms to use Zoom or any other kind of technology during this pandemic? Are there trade-offs that we should be considering? You know what, when you explain it like this just now, I got it in a way that I didn't get when I read the Twitter um, thread. So what you're saying is that there shouldn't have been a, there's a rush away from Zoom when there shouldn't have been a rush to Zoom without some careful thought about these issues for sure, but also other issues which we could talk about, maybe not today, but about access issues, et cetera, et cetera, bandwidth. But like, I never really thought about that, that rush. Like, what's the value to get all these kids educated if we put them at risk in the first place? And can you be lauded for them retroactively protecting the children by removing the very fox you dropped in the middle of their hen house in the first place? Interesting. Um, hmm. Jason, why don't you react while I get my thoughts together? I think schools have been in a very tough position with school suddenly being closed. I think we could talk about a lot of culpability of how little we've invested in building an educational infrastructure that can deliver quality education in different ways. But if we just look at this moment where all of a sudden schools closed, there wasn't a lot of time for preparation. I think I don't blame schools for using something like Zoom. And and prior to this Zoom bombing stuff, I wasn't aware of Zoom being vulnerable anyway. So I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't feel again, I could be critical of us as a country and how little we've invested in educational infrastructure more broadly, but once schools closed, schools trying to get instruction to kids through Zoom, which is a platform that Sure, there are still kids that don't have access to it, but is more accessible than a lot of other platforms that might be even less likely that a lot of kids can have Wait, access Ethan, to. I'm going to interrupt you, right? Because I want you to abstract from this point, right? So let's not make it about Zoom, right? You've been working in schools for a long time in and around education. Like, what consideration should we give technology that we're introducing to like a million children at once, which is what happened with Zoom in New York City? Like, what is the responsibility of the school to make to take care? to take care of the students in this world when we, we see like the, we can see the lengths that technology can go to dig into your information. Like, I think that's really the question, like not Zoom versus Skype versus house party versus whatever. It's just like, what's the role of the technology in the classroom? And pandemic aside, like pandemic aside, like if this was like a, and it is a serious privacy concern, but if there had been damage done because we rushed to standardizing this in like the three or four days that these decisions got made, or maybe it was a week or two, still like, so the question for you, Jason, as an educational professional, like what safeguards are there? Like what thinking goes into introducing technology, like connective technology to children? What, sh what kind of thinking should go into that? I think a lot should. I think we should definitely be thinking about protecting first. I also think, though, and again, I guess I'm going to be a little bit of an apologist here. I also think we know that technology, broadly speaking, lots of times when we think things are secure, there are people who find ways to infiltrate them. And that's going to happen in schools, and it is going to get to our kids. And there are plenty of examples of schools that um, are not careful enough and kids you know, are victimized. I would say there are examples of schools that are too risk averse and kids get deprived of opportunity as a result. And again, I think even when schools are doing everything we would want them to, there are going to be times when, when kids are vulnerable in ways that the school couldn't have predicted. 
I mean, that sounds good, but as a parent, it doesn't sound good. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if your child is the one that's harmed and a part of it, I think is this question of harm, right? Is because this notion is lack of instruction is harmful, is more harmful than someone coming in and saying a racial epithet at a child, which is, which are compromises we make all the time, right? It was like, no, you need to, you need to get this because this is more important in the long term than us considering your overall care. And that was the part that I, cause you know, that's, that's, I mean, I have to admit that as a, as someone who has moved into Zoom and I'm an adult and I can deal with it as I need to. One of the things I think that's really emerged out of the epidemic, out of the pandemic experience is how little care we take with so many things. <laughs> and now that we are actually called to take care and then we almost sort of like in hyper fashion, it's when you realize, wow, we haven't asked these questions. We haven't asked any of these um, trade. We haven't even unpacked any of these trade-offs. To piggyback so off of that though, I feel like it's revealed that we don't, when things are quote unquote good, when people are making money and exchanging goods and services, these are questions that we just don't bother to ask. Zoom's been around for nine or 10 years. And Zoom, like forget about the education piece. People have been using Zoom for business for years and years. Like you can't make, I, I tried to make this case, but someone educated me. You can't make the case like, oh, well, they didn't expect this user base. They probably knew about these problems while working on it. This has been a B2B technology, right? Business to business yep. for some time. I mean, just corporate espionage alone is a reason why you should actually patch up these holes. But the fact is, is that like, I don't know, like we just, what this reveals to me is that, yes, schools were in a bind. They had to quickly educate a bunch of kids at once and they just reached for it. But it's the kind of risk assessments that we make around education all the time. You know, like, well, we don't want kids to get shot up at school, but we don't want to restrict anyone from having guns. So send your kids to schools and we're rolling the dice because an education is important. You know, like we're, we're weighing harm. And it's interesting because when technology gets thrown in the mix, like we just assume that the pieces are going to fall where they're going to fall. But like the Zoom bombing, and let's, let's hope that that was the length of it. Because now I'm seeing articles that say that people could um, find out who's in the meeting, like where they are physically, like observe the meeting, record the meeting, and find out physically where the participants are. And that's super problematic. And I, I don't know. I just, if that was your kid, Jason, would you prefer they be uneducated for this period of time or that like a predator or someone might get your information? But you're, I think you're, you're, it just feels like at the time that people were making those decisions, I don't know that, like I didn't, I've used Zoom professionally for a long time. I didn't know. Zoom, I. Yeah. So I didn't know Zoom was vulnerable in that way. I don't know why we'd expect like schools to know that, like you're talking as if they made a trade-off, like they knew, well, kids could be harmed, but we want to give them instruction. I don't think that was the calculus. I think it was Zoom has been a reliable uh, resource that there's not a, an, uh, we don't know to be vulnerable and we need to provide instruction. And then as soon as it was shown to be vulnerable, New York City stopped using it. I, Why wasn't that question asked up front? I, you're saying it wasn't asked. I'm not sure it wasn't asked. It was asked and answered with the information they had. There, there are mm -hmm. other things like there are, I mean, this may sound nonsensical, but there are things like TikTok that are widely known to be harmful to kids. Mm -hmm. I think Zoom, I, I don't know that anyone had that information at the time those decisions were made. 
Well, also, you know, the other part of it that's that the other part of it that was noteworthy for me though was the idea that it's also not FERPA compliant. What's FERPA? Jason, tell them what it is. I don't know the 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 full but. Um. Oh my God. Family. It's a, it's a privacy. It's a private. It's, it's a federal Sorry. privacy law. Everyone, Jason is furiously googling. No, no, no. Family, no, no, no. family I, I Educational Rights and Privacy Act. I should know it. FERPA. No, no, no. I we you can take that out. No. So FERPA. It's a privacy. No, it's a privacy thing. I didn't know the actual. What is it? What is what? What's the reverse of what that means? Anagram or whatever the heck that is. Whatever the the acronym. The acronym. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't know the acronym. But essentially, it's about. Actually, one of the things that's interesting about the question of FERPA is that lots of things are private. Lots are lots of things are privacy things. So, like even a parent observing a kid in a classroom is a question, which is yes. what you're having happening now. Um, interactions by other students and the comments that other students are making in a classroom, which now is you know. So there are all these other kind of aspects around um, sort of education flipped remotely that bears unpacking that I hadn't really thought about because for me it was about efficiency, right? That was a, that was the value was how do we deliver this education and instruction efficiently as we deal with a pandemic. Where, whereas I think there may need to be other people who are really thinking, okay, that's great for you, but this is my responsibility. And I need to take a deep dive into making sure that students are secure, all of these things. Because this is an interesting question to raise as we think about how the summer might progress and potentially in the fall. You know, these are meant to be maybe business tools and maybe tools for adults that sign in and make certain kind of compromises. And that's fine. Um, but actually, Zoom bombing has been super helpful for us, too, just on a business side, because there are lots of things we weren't aware of, which is that yeah. don't put your don't put your individual ID out there. And there are apparently like Reddits that are actually just about helping you bomb people. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They can generate the meeting IDs that Zoom generates is can be figured out, right? Yep. It's an algorithm, you can figure it out. And then once you have a list of them, you can just pop in to see if people are using them and just say or do or listen or do whatever you want. I think it's, first of all, let's just say this is really helpful information because I use Zoom too. And I think about what I want to use Zoom for and what kind of conversations I want to use Zoom for nowadays. Um, but then Jason, you also introduced something earlier today about like where some of this criticism is coming from. I love this tidbit. <laughs> I love it yeah. because it's, it's saucy. What I've heard within kind of education circles is like Microsoft, from a competitive standpoint, has for a long time tried to get um, schools to use Microsoft Teams um, and not Zoom. I heard that the second there was a problem with Zoom, that there were folks from Microsoft that jumped on the opportunity to say, this is why you shouldn't use Zoom. You should move to Microsoft Teams. You know, the instructive element for us is that we can, I mean, and this is obviously cliche because we have this conversation all the time, is that we can demand more of our tech by simply asking certain questions. And that we, and now that we're asking questions, the tech says, oh, by the way, here's a, here's an update. You know? <laughs> um, and so, um, and, you know, I think that that's just what was revealing. But I, I. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't come down on anything, and I was like, oh, what does this matter? You know, these, Jason, I want to react to something you said earlier. You were like, you're not sure these questions have been asked. Like, they were asked, and this is the answer to them. But, you know, the one thing that I've learned from watching, like, literally hours of 
Hulu and Netflix daily is that those medicine ads come on for like Xyljance or Florfugnugan, <laughs> whatever. And there's like a whole list of things that can happen to you from like rectal bleeding to there's one medication that causes a rupture in your perineum. You know, that space like underneath you, like the yeah. underneath, you know. <laughs> so, and I was like, wow. First of all, what the fuck is this medication that's going to cause a rupture down there in between me down there? So, but my point about this is. <laughs> yeah, like, where? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. the point is, is, is that I see entirely too many of these commercials. Two <laughs> is that the drug companies are forced to air that because everyone's like why would they even say that a commercial it's so graphic even though 0.01 percent of people will experience that they are by law required to let consumers know that this is a slim possibility look how we take care of people in that space the slimmest possibility this could happen but at some point at some level there was a room where someone said hey we don't really know that much about zoom and its privacy and someone said it will be fine We'll go roll it out to 1.2 million students. Like that, it's not like we're rushing to service people and like we're like, okay, this will be great for everyone. Let's just go, let's go, go, go. There are moments in our society where we stop and go, okay, let's discuss harm. Let's discuss what that looks like and let's present that to people, to everyone, so we can make a decision about how to move forward. But I think what Trisha is bringing up and what Tressie McMillan Cotton is bringing up is that that failure to happen here is just, it's interesting. No one's saying it's necessarily diabolic. I just think it's interesting that we put the privacy of a couple of million students just on the line and crossing our fingers that nothing bad would happen. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up the pharmaceutical analogy. I mean, I'll be honest, what keeps me up at night much more than Zoom is privacy that, is your concerns. Steam rupturing between your, your butthole and, and your butthole. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Me now, the first now, time I heard that, I was like, what is happening? I mean, imagine you're sitting around and you're like, I, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what I was trying to say. Yeah, see if you can get that back. Go ahead. <laughs> where, where, where I think there's a stronger analogy and what I'm more concerned about is the number of like online and technological education, quote, solutions, unquote, that are on the market that there's absolutely zero evidence oh, of efficacy. Yeah. They should have to put that on the front of the package you know, warning, there is no evidence that this will teach your child anything at all. Yes. I 1 billion percent agree. That happens all the time. Like, oh, buy this system for your toddler and he'll go to Yale. And I'm like, toddler's dumb. Right? Like, Can we stop? Don't <laughs> read I, your kid Shakespeare. But I, think it, but I think in a moment of crisis, that's very compelling. Right? And But even when it's not a crisis, but I think if you think about just like the nature of parenting and how busy people are and like, hey, this is promises to do this. Remember when people said if you played um, if you played um, music to your baby while they were in the womb, they were going to be really, really smart. And the research was sort of dodgy on that. And But people still went around and put music. <laughs> the research came back and said it's bullshit. But much, much like vitamin C, people still consume. Oh, spoilers. Did everyone know that? It works if you believe. Oh shit! I fucked it. It's a oh, placebo you, effect. I fucked now, it up. Yeah. Now you messed it all up. Just kidding. It works if you think it works. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's move on to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience? Jason. So I want to report back. I have now finished Kingdom, and I fully recommend the entire series. Oh, 
I'd like a callback. And secondly, though, um, I now this will sound very outdated, but because the new Bad Boys came out, I went back and watched the first two. I recommend the first Bad Boys movie, and I absolutely have a negative anti-recommendation for the second one, the Michael Bay one, which was just awful. Well, Michael Bay. Someone's <laughs> paying him to make these movies. Someone pays him to do it. I, I think he should be he should not be allowed to make these movies. It was awful. He should be punished. Like he should there should be a tribunal. Yes. Uh, Trisha. <laughs> you all know I've been struggling to read full books, watch full movies. So but I did manage to watch um two things this weekend. I finally took a deep dive into Tiger King. Oh, I just started it. I just started. I did. I've done two episodes. Okay, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I want to thank all of social media because I'm enjoying it. I think it's fascinating, <laughs> and I I didn't expect it to go the way it did, and I loved it. Um, and then I also returned to one of my first loves, which are lovely gay romance movies, and I saw a movie called Mario which was made in 2018 and it's from Switzerland. So the characters were speaking Swiss German, which is cool. Roger, Roger Federerland. Um, oh, I knew that was being a plug. Jason, right? I was looking at her face. I was like, just go ahead and mention your idol. Um, it's basically the story about um, two football players and football in the way that they refer to it, which is soccer. Um, two footballers fall in love and challenges ensue. It was actually really well done. Imagine that was the back of the box. <laughs> it's not even the back One of the box, ten. but let me, let me read the description. I think mine was better. Two young footballers develop chemistry both on and off the pitch, but anxiety sets in as they attempt to hide their blossoming relationship. Mm, no, mine's better. <laughs> 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 Mario, a 2018 movie. The boys are beautiful. The story is actually pretty well written, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you have Amazon Prime, it is there for free. Oh, there Good you to go. Know. There it is. There you go. What about uh, you, Christopher? Uh, what about me? Okay, first of all, I mean, what do I do? I wake up, I eat breakfast, <laughs> eat breakfast, preserve, eat lunch, eat lunch, preserve. I I don't know how much I've been taking in. I certainly. I've been struggling to read like you, but I forced myself to read a couple of things. And I, I guess there's two experiences that I have that I'd like to bring up. Um, one is that Stanford University has, they're doing this new educational project called Code in Place. Since mm -hmm. so many people around the world are like trapped at home and looking for something to do, they're offering this free online course to learn the programming language Python. Mm -hmm. So, I signed up for that. You've got to like do all this reading and take a test, and then it's going to be like 20 hours a week, and you're going to meet with people online and do projects. And then at the end, you don't get a degree, you don't get a certificate, you don't have to pay anything, but you learn a new skill. So, I mean, I guess the experience I had has been learning a new skill, and it's been really cool. And I wrote my first program today, and I was running around the house like I was an, an eight-year-old who just got an A on a test. I was very excited. Uh, but yeah, so I guess that's the experience I've had. The other um, thing that I saw lately, which I thought was interesting, although I cannot recommend it, is there is a Hulu, Amazon, show called Tales from the Loop. Mm. It is a show that is based on the artwork of a Swedish 
artist. This would be really hard to describe. Um, named Simon Stallenhag. And the art that he creates is very surreal. It's sort of like these environments, which are sort of like in the near past. Like it's, some of it has like an 80s Soviet era feel. But then in the distance, there's some very surreal and science fiction elements coexisting. So it's both past and future at the same time. The pictures themselves are very haunting and beautiful. And I guess Amazon Prime thought they can make a show based on it. I watched the first episode and it turns out, no, they cannot make a show based on it. So that's uh, so all I have to say about that. And so, well, there it is. What are you two up to after this? I'm going to go have my dessert dessert in a minute. I'm going to have my dessert dessert and watch episode three of Tiger King. <laughs> Jesus, I refuse to get involved. I'm just going to say that publicly. I refuse. Don't you roll your eyes at me, Trisha. I, like I've said this before, the less I know about those kinds of people, the better. Oh my yeah, God. I said it. I said it. Every five minutes, Habby and I just look at each other and say, these people are fucking crazy. All, of them, all of them on all sides of the story are not. I don't want to know anything about these people. You know what? I think we should all just stop discussing far, period. <laughs> to be honest. You know what? And on that note, everybody, bye. That's amazing. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>